Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly Read by Alec Bowles Han Solo at Star's End 11. More inmates had come up to the landing, but they were unarmed. Han repeated instructions about weapons and not stopping. His heart pounded when he thought how concentrated the energy beams would be in that stairwell. Goodbye, old spaceman's home. He rose to a half-crouch, and the others emulated him. Chewie and me first, to lay down a cover. On three. One. Two. He edged to the corner. A small, furry form, vaulting over those behind Han, landed on his shoulders, tugging at his neck. Its limber tail looped out to encircle the surprised Chewbacca's wrist. Han staggered, valor forgotten. What the flying? He identified his assailant. Paka! The cub swung down from Han's neck, bouncing up and down urgently, tugging at his leg. For a moment, no fact seemed reliable. Paka, didn't you? I mean, where's Atwari? Damn it, kid, how'd you get here? He remembered then that the cub couldn't answer. Doc was shouting from below. Solo, get down here. Sit on things here. Don't charge and don't fall back unless you have to, Han told Chewbacca. He pressed through his troops and raced down the stairs, trailing the fleet Paka. Inside the emergency door, leading to the tier blocks, he slid to a halt. A Tuari! She was surrounded by Doc and the other prisoners. Solo, Captain. She seized his hands, her words tumbling out on top of one another. She'd brought in the Millennium Falcon and clamped onto the cargo lock here at the tier block level, on the opposite side of the tower from the Espo assault ship. I don't think they noticed me. Energy fluxes in Star's End are distorting senses completely. I had to link up purely by visual tracking. Han drew Doc and Atwari aside. We could never, never fit all these people into the Falcon. Not if we use every cubic centimeter of space. How do we tell them? The Triani broke in. Solo Captain, shut up, please, and listen. I have a tunnel tube junction station secured to the Falcon. I drove it right up against the ship and made it fast with a tractor beam. We can certainly fit inmates in the tunnel tubes if we extend them, Doc began. Han's excited voice overbore him. We'll do better than that. Atwari, you're a genius. But will the tunnel tube reach? It should. Doc was looking from one to the other. What are you two? Oh, I see. He rubbed his hands together, eyes bright. This will be novel for a fact. One of the defenders from the upper landing poked his head through the emergency door. Solo, the vice prex is calling for you again. If I don't answer, he'll know something's doing. I'll send Chewie down to help you. Work fast. Solo, Captain, we have only minutes remaining. He bounded up the stairs, though it left him huffing and heaving and threatened to black him out. Air's going, he thought. In hushed tones, he explained everything quickly and dispatched the Wookiee and most of the others down to join Atwari and Doc. Then he answered Hirkin. The vice prex shouted, Time's short, Solo. Will you yield? Yield? Han sputtered, unbelieving. What do you have in mind? Defloration? 
He pegged a shot around the corner, beginning a steady harassing fire, and hoped that those below could hold the Espo assault team for the required time. Ninety seconds later, a cycling light came on over one of the unused stern airlocks of the Authority assault craft. No one was there to notice because, except for a skeleton watch, the entire ship's complement had been turned out to rescue the Viceprex at his order. The lock opened. Through it stepped a very incensed Wookiee, hefting a captured wide-bore blaster. He was pleased, however, that he hadn't been compelled to waste time and power burning through the locked doors. He'd secured the outer hatch open. Behind him, floating in the weightlessness of the extended tunnel tube, were more prisoners, waiting with weapons and with claws and stingers and pincers and bare, eager hands. Even farther back, at the junction station, other prisoners were being crowded aboard the Falcon, while more waited to leave the tower. Since the freighter could never hold them all, this ship had to be captured. Chewbacca gave a hand motion and set off. The others drew themselves in after, touching down as they entered the assault craft's artificial gravity. The lock's opening had been noted on the bridge. An Espo crewman, coming to check out what he thought would be a malfunction in the airlock apparatus, rounded a corner and almost fetched up against the Wookiee's enormous, furry-haired torso. A stroke of the blaster's butt sent the Espo flying back through the air. He landed in a brown-clad heap, his helmet skittering along the deck. Another Espo, down a side passageway, heard the noise and came running, tugging at his holstered pistol. Chewbacca stepped out of concealment and swung the blaster's stovepipe barrel, downing him. As prisoners rushed to pick up the felled men's weapons, Chewbacca led the rest on, past engineering and crew's quarters, as small parties split off from the main group to take and hold those areas. More and more prisoners poured from the aft lock, making way quickly for the many who were to follow. The Wookiee came to the hatch of the ship's bridge. He hit its release and, as the hatch slid up, stepped through. A junior officer did a foolish double-take and fumbled for his pistol, saying, How and Chewbacca struck the officer down with a giant forearm, then threw his head back and roared. Those behind him surged into the bridge. Little of the fighting done in the next twelve seconds was with artificial weapons. None of the bridge watch ever reached an alarm button. Setting the wide bore aside, Chewbacca prepared to cast off from Star's End. Atwari watched anxiously as she and a few chosen helpers in the big tier-level cargo lock almost threw milling prisoners into the tunnel tube, where they thrashed like swimmers, moving and helping one another toward the junction station. Doc had already gone ahead to take the Falcon's controls. As soon as Chewbacca had control of the assault craft, he was to free it gently from the tower so that it couldn't be retaken, and the Espo's withdrawal route would be cut off. So many, Atwari thought, hoping there'd be room enough for all of them. Then she saw a familiar face in the crowd and abandoned her place, keening with joy. Paka came, too, and clung to his father's back, holding on to both his parents for the first time in months, his wide eyes tearing. Just then, 
Starzan's general power conduits, weakened by erratic flow management, began to explode. Up on the landing, Han heard it, the beginning of Starzan's death throes. He was holding with three others, all of them armed. Hirkin's people had been quiet for the last few minutes. The Viceprex was probably hoping that relief wasn't far off. And he could be right. Since Espo assault troops were working their way up through the tower quickly, mowing down the prisoners' opposition. But the exploding conduits constituted a new factor. Han ordered everybody back. We'll hold at the tier block level. Pass the word below to come running. They could pull back to the airlock, which lay beyond the fifth tier block, if they had to. He fired a few more shots up the stairwell as his runner took off. He tried to figure out how long it had been since the tower had been blown free. Twenty minutes? More? They were asking a great deal of their luck. As Han and his men fell back, the clatter of the lower-level defenders was heard. Both groups met at the emergency door leading to the tier blocks and crowded through. Han, among the last, turned to give the man behind him a hand, only to see him die with an odd, disappointed look on his face. Han pulled the falling body out of the way as the final prisoner leaped through. Several others helped him shoulder the ponderous door shut as blaster and disruptor fire lashed against it and made it fast with scraps of metal jammed in the latch. But it wouldn't hold long, especially if the heavy crew-served blaster were brought up. Han surveyed the prisoners with him. How many left to load? Almost done, fella, someone called. Just a few left, not more than a hundred or so. Then anybody who's not armed, hat up. The rest, spread out and take up a firing position. We're almost home. They were still moving down the corridor when the emergency door crumpled inward, burned from its frame in a rain of glowing slag. The snout of the crew-served blaster stood in the gap, pointing straight into the abandoned first-tier block. Han didn't bother firing at its shielded barrel. The heavy blaster erupted into the empty tier block, and an armored espo came worming around it to enter the corridor. One of the prisoners stopped long enough to shoot him. At the curve in the corridor, the defenders paused to take up firing again. The gunners were having trouble getting their piece through the emergency door without exposing themselves to counterfire. Han and three others were the only ones left. A few prisoners had gone on to set up a new line of defense. Smoke from ruptured power conduits was getting thicker. The air, thinner. Han's senses strayed for a moment. He was opposite the door to the second tier block and crossed to it, bent over double for a better field of fire. But he spied something propped up against one of the stasis booths, halfway down the tier's aisle. Bollocks! What the hell are you doing there? Evidently, the droid either had been dragged or had managed to drag himself this far toward the airlock, then had been shunted aside, and, pausing in the shelter of the tier block for a moment, was unable to rise again. Han realized that no prisoner in fear of his life would have taken time to worry about an antiquated labor droid. He ran to his side and dropped to one knee. Up and at him, Annihilator! We're beaten feet. It took all his strength to get the droid up. 
Thank you, Captain Solo. Bollock drawled. Even with Max in direct linkage, I couldn't... Captain! Simultaneously with the droid's warning, Han felt Bollocks throw all his mechanical weight against him, sending the two of them spinning around. In the same stopped frame, as it seemed, a disruptor beam meant for Han sliced into the droid's head. As they spun, Han's draw was automatic. In that frozen instant, he saw Ulra Shan standing in the doorframe at the head of the aisle, the bodies of the other defenders on the corridor floor behind him. The reptilian gunman had his weapon held at arm's length, knowing that his first shot had missed. The disruptor pistol was realigning. Han, with no time to aim, fired from the hip. Everything seemed to him to take forever, and yet to happen instantly. The blaster bolt flowered high against Ulrashan's green-scaled chest, lifting him and hurling him backward while his own disruptor shot lanced upward and splashed off the ceiling. Han and Bollocks were sprawled together on the floor. There was no light in the droid's photoreceptors, no evidence of function. Han rose shakily, locked the fingers of his left hand around Bollocks's shoulder pauldron, holding on to his blaster with his right, and began hauling, heaving for breath. He never saw the Espos, who following in Ulrashan's wake, were ready to cut him down. Nor did he see them fall, downed by the fire from the prisoner's counterattack. Han's lightheadedness had narrowed his vision down to a dark tunnel. Through the tunnel, he would drag Bollocks back to the Falcon, nothing less. Suddenly, another figure was at his side, a furred and sinuous Triani ranger bearing a smoking blaster. Solo Captain? It was a male's voice. Come, I will aid you. We have but seconds. Han let the other do so, both of them tugging the droid's hulk along much more quickly. Dull curiosity made Han ask, Why? Because my mate, Atwari, said not to bother coming back without you, and because my cub, Paka, would have come if I had not. The Triani called out, Here, I found him. Others arrived to give supporting fire, throwing the Espos into a brief confusion. The assaulting troops, not having gotten their heavy blaster into the corridor yet, fell back. More willing hands dragged at bollocks. Then, somehow, they were all standing at the airlock, and the Espos seemed to have broken off their attack. The droid was floated into the tunnel tube, along with the other defenders and Atwari's mate. Only then did Han enter the airlock, leaving behind a strangely silent chamber. The fresher, thicker air of the tube hit him like a drug. He waved the rest on. The Millennium Falcon was still his ship, and he would be the one to cast off. Solo, wait! A man stumbled out of the smoke. Vice Prex Hirken, looking a century older, he spoke with hysterical speed. Solo, I know they've moved the assault ship away from the lower lock. I told no one, not even my wife. I ordered the Espos back and came in by myself. He shuffled closer, hands imploring. Hans stared at the vice president for corporate security as if he were a specimen under a scope. Please take me, Solo. Do anything, anything, anything to me, but don't leave me here to... 
Hirkin's handsome face jumped, as if he'd forgotten what he was about to say. Then he fell, squirming and reaching uselessly for the wound in his back. His obese wife came waddling up behind him with espos at her back and a smoking pistol in her hands. Han had already hit the inner airlock hatch closure. He dived through the outer, into the tunnel tube, hitting that switch too. As the outer airlock hatch closed, he irised the tunnel tube shut, released its seal with an outgushing of air, and unclamped the tube. He floated there, watching through a viewport as Hirkin's wife and the Espos beat at the airlock's outer hatch viewport, unavailingly. Star's End's descent speed had already drawn it away, and it plunged deeper into the planet's gravity well. Around him, he could see and hear the wobble of the tunnel tube as packed prisoners were gradually absorbed into the assault craft and the Millennium Falcon. Everyone in the two ships and the tunnel tubes was so busy crowding elbow to pseudopod or helping the injured or the dying that only one survivor thought to watch the towers fall. As his mother and Doc labored over the Falcon's controls, conning the freighter under its extreme burden and maintaining tractor grip on the junction station, Paca hung from an overhead conduit in the cockpit, the only one with both an unoccupied mind and a vantage point. The cub stared down at Star's End's descent, the flawless trajectory of an airless world. And even the sudden, brilliant flash of its impact didn't distract the others, who had lives to worry about. But Paca, unblinking, unspeaking, saw the symbol of authority flare and die with the brevity of a meteor. The wind pulled hard across the landing field on Erdur. A no-nonsense wind, chilling, biting, but fresh and free. The former inmates of Star's End, those who had lived to reach this latest outlaw tech base, breathed it without complaint as they were herded off to temporary quarters. But Han still pulled his borrowed greatcoat tighter around him. I'm not arguing he argued. I just don't understand is all. He was addressing Doc, but Jessa was listening, as were Paca, Atwari, and her mate, Kihin. Nearby rested the Falcon, the tunnel tube junction still clamped to her side, and the Espo assault craft. Doc had guided both stuffy, overcrowded ships into quick contact with Jessa, and they'd been directed to this latest hideout world. Chewbacca was still on board the Falcon, surveying the damage done to her since the last time he'd seen her. A new yawp of inconsolable sadness echoed from the ship each time he found another item of damage. Doc, rather than reiterate his explanation, said, Youngster, check the droid out for yourself. There! Outlaw techs were just offloading Bollocks's mutilated, beam-scorched form from the ship. An entire segment of his cranium had been shot away by Ul-Rashan. At Doc's order, his men brought over the repulsor lift hand truck with the droid strapped to it. With force bars and pinch jacks, they prized open the plastron. And there sat Blue Max, unscathed, 
running off his own power pack. Han leaned over him. Uh, Maxi? The computer's voice still sounded like a child's. Captain Solo, long time no see. In fact, long time no see anything. Gotcha. Sorry. Things were really jumping this trip. Is Bollocks in there with you for a fact? In response, he heard the unhurried drawl of the labor droid coming from Max's grill, sounding strangely high-pitched through the vocoder. Right enough, Skipper. Blue Max was in direct link with me when the disruptor hit me. He pulled all my essential information and basic matrices down here, safe and sound with him in microseconds. Imagine that. Naturally, I've lost a lot of specifics, but I guess I can always relearn camp sanitation procedures if I have to. The voice became dejected. I suppose my body's unsalvageable, though. We'll get you a new one, bollocks, Doc promised. One for both of you. A custom puff, you have my word. But now you have to go. My boys will make sure all that circuitry in there remains stable. Bollocks, Han said, and found himself with nothing to say. He hit that problem from time to time. Take it slow. I always do, the vocoder drawled. Goodbye, Captain Solo, Blue Max added. Jessa, shading her eyes, pointed to the assault craft. There's a problem we won't solve in the shop. A dark-skinned figure sat by the ship's ramp, head bent to his chest. He took his uncle's death pretty hard, Jessica continued. Recon was quite a man. Losing him would be hard on anybody. She looked to Han. Han was studiously looking elsewhere. He saw the boy's head come up from his private grief. He bore a startling resemblance to Recon. What do we do with him? Jessa went on. Most of the prisoners will find a new life somehow. Even Torm's father and brother. The majority of them will leave the corporate sector. A few hotheads plan to take it to the courts as if they had a prayer. But the boy's by far the youngest you rescued. And he's got no one now. She was watching her father expectantly. Doc's eyebrows shot up. Don't goggle at me, girly. I'm a certified businessman and criminal. I don't collect strays. She giggled. But you never turn them away, either. And you always say there's always room for one more at the table. We'll just scramble the eggs, he anticipated her, and water the soup. I know. Well, I suppose I could at least talk to the lad. He might have some usable aptitude. Hmm. Yes. Atwari, you worked with his uncle quite closely. Would you mind coming with me? Doc went off with all three Triani at his side. Paka turned and flipped Han a parting wave. His other paw hand caught up in his father's. Jessa looked at Han. Well, Solo, thanks. See you around. She turned to go. He couldn't stifle an involuntary, hey! She turned back with a cant to her head that let him know he'd have to talk fast, which he did. I put my life, my one and precious life, mind you, on the line for your father and all those other fine people, she cut in, including your good friend Chewy, and went through a couple of types of hair-raising situations, and all you have to say is thanks? She evinced shock. 
Why, you only carried out your part of our deal, and I carried out mine. What else did you expect, a parade? He glared at her, hoping she'd wither from his gaze. She didn't. He spun on his toe and headed for the Falcon's ramp with long strides. You win. Women. Ha! I've got the whole galaxy, sweetheart. The whole galaxy. Who needs this? She caught up, whirled him around. Jessa looked good, even in cold weather gear. Numbskull, what's wrong with striking another deal? His brow furrowed. I am somehow slipping into something tricky here, he thought, but I can't quite see what. What kind of deal? She considered it, looking him over. What are your plans? Are you going to join this campaign against the authority or clear out of this part of space? He looked up, sighing. You should know better than that. Rob them blind. That's my kind of revenge. Jessa leaned around him and called up into the ship. Hey, Chewie, how'd you like an all-new guidance system and a complete overhaul? The Wookiee's delighted honks preceding his appearance at the ramp sounded like a happy foghorn. Jessa finished cheerily. And to show you what a sport I am, boys, I'll throw in some body work, repair all minor hull damage. I'll reroute the ducting in the cockpit, too, Get all those conduits and other head knockers out of your way. Chewbacca was close to tears of joy. He threw his hairy arm around the Falcon's landing gear and gave it a wet, wookie kiss. Jessa said, See, Solo? It's easy when you're the boss's daughter. He was flummoxed. Jess? What am I supposed to offer? She slipped her arm through his, grinning slyly. What have you got, Han? She led him away, ignoring his objections. His outbursts became fewer as the pair walked across the landing field toward the distant buildings. Halfway there, Chewbacca saw, Han held his great coat open so that she could slip into it, safe from the bitter winds of Erdur, though her own suit was quite well insulated. Leaning casually on the falcon, the Wookiee watched them go and thought about what he and Han Solo could do with a ship milled and tuned fine by the full resources of the outlaw Tex. His muzzle wrinkled back from his fangs. He was glad for the breather they'd have here on Erdur. But after that, everybody had best hang on to his cash with both hands.